This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. Hi, this is Women Who Travel, a podcast from Condé Nast Traveller. I'm Lale Arikoglu, and with me, as always, is my co-host Meredith Carey. Hello! This week we're joined by Evita Robinson, the founder of Nomadness Travel Tribe, an online community for adventurous travellers of colour. Since starting it in 2011, she's built a network of over 22,000 members, launched the annual travel festival Audacity Fest, and even co-created the web series The Nomadness Project, along with Insecure's Issa Rae. Needless to say, we are super, super, super excited to have her in the studio this week. Thank you. Hi, Vita. Hi. <laughs> How are you doing today? I'm good. Today's been a day. I've been on the road since this morning, and so it's been like boom, 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 but this is cool. I'm glad to be here. Okay, well, you have like a good like 45 minutes rest now where we'll grill you with questions. <laughs> no, it's fine. <laughs> Listen, I'm all for it. I'm all for it. Um, I'd love to know, just starting off, what your relationship with travel was growing up, because obviously now it's such an important part of your life, but... Has it always been? That's an amazing question, actually, um, because I think people start with nomadness and they don't start with like me, (laughs) you know, because it's an intriguing story because I'm an outlier in my family. You know, I'm the black sheep. Nobody travels to the extent that I do by like by far, by a long shot. And so travel really, I think, was introduced to me with these road trips that my family, my uh, the patriarchal side of my family, my dad's side would uh, take from Long Island, New York, down to Columbia and Camden, South Carolina, where a lot of his family um, grew up. And so, you know, we had like the migration north and then the migration south. And, you know, my grandmother, my uncle, a couple cousins decided to stay and perch in Long Island. But my dad ended up moving down to Columbia, South Carolina. My grandfather was in Camden. Um, He passed away a year ago, actually. But my aunts, my, you know, a cousin and uncles all lived in Columbia and Camden, South Carolina. So we used to do a caravan and we would literally have like three or four cars full of family that was still living in New York at the time. And I remember my grandmother would like cook all this food back when I used to eat meat. I'm like a 12 year pescatarian. But, you know, she would cook like fried chicken and she would just put like all of these like non-perishable foods in these Ziploc bags. And we would just pack up in these cars and we would leave super late at night and it would just be a 14 hour road trip from Long Island, Hempstead, Long Island, um, down to Camden and um, Columbia, South Carolina. And I remember as a kid seeing things that were landmarks to me that were so cool, like south of the border. It was like an amusement park to me. It's still there. At that age, it is. And it's like sad and depressing as an adult. (laughs) But like as a kid, it was the shit. But it was also the indicator, like we're almost getting out of this car, like officially, you know. And so south of the border was like a really cool landmark for me. And I just remember just being with my family trying to sleep still to this day. I can't really sleep in moving vehicles. And so I think it stemmed from those road trips and me just kind of wanting to stay up and see even at night. Like I love doing things at night. Everything kind of calms down. I love New York at night. And uh, and so that was really my intro. And then on my stepfather's side of the family, they were from Jamaica. And when I was a kid up until the age of, I want to say four or five, we lived in a three-level apartment building in the city of Poughkeepsie. I grew up in Poughkeepsie. And my grandparents lived on the bottom floor. And so we would go to Jamaica once a year with that side of the family, especially once they ended up moving out of Poughkeepsie and going back home. So uh, yeah, Jamaica and these road trips between Hempstead, Long Island and Columbia, South Carolina. There are a lot of traveler editors who would also say that south of the border is like iconic to their growing up It is. Up it's travels. like this weird thing that 
that you know you're always gonna have respect for, but it's like it's it's a whole other. You look at it completely different when you're an adult, but the nostalgia, like you can't get around the nostalgia. You can't. And so doing those road trips, even though you're seeing parts of the country that you aren't living in, yeah. everything still remains relatively familiar. What yeah. were those early trips to Jamaica like? It's funny. I just remember seeing pictures of me like as a topless little baby running around <laughs> on the beaches. It was more like I was so young that there were stories that were told about me that I didn't necessarily remember. It was like middle school age where I was getting sick of the trips to Jamaica because I was hitting that age. Middle schools, I mean, it's an honorary age, but you're hitting an age where you're cognizant and aware of the cool stuff that there is to do in a place, but you're still too young to actually partake in it. So it becomes frustrating. And my grandmother, like, refused to invest in an air conditioner for her house and it's Jamaica and it's hot and these fans are blown around hot ass air around this huge house <laughs> and I'm like I'm dying in here you know but the adults get to go out and play so it was um it was around middle school where I started to just really have a sense of remembering those trips and although it was great for you know the family building and you know obviously getting out of New York especially in the winter months and being able to go to the beach and be in Jamaica and be around this and on a local level I think that aided in my travels now and what I try to do to the best of our ability with no madness is to have like really authentic getting into the guts of a place type trips right we're not going to sit on a beach all day in a place in some like you know full you know all-inclusive like no we actually want to find out where the locals hang out like where do you eat you know where do you go out and so I think that that was probably shaped by the earlier years of being in Montego Bay and going to Duns River Falls and even going to Kingston, Jamaica, but like doing it with my family. So it was like super, super like rustic and like in the bush. Yeah. Um, was there a point when you were able to travel on your own that it clicked like, oh, I want to do this all the time and not just because my family's doing it and yeah. I have to go? Um, it was senior year of college. In New Rochelle, New York, I went to Iona College, and it was the last semester, and I was toying with the idea after graduation of doing a filmmaking workshop with the New York Film Academy. I don't even know if the New York Film Academy is still up, <laughs> if it's still a thing. I mean, is you used it? to see posters everywhere, and, and you don't see them that anymore. building in, like, was it Astor It was Place? in Union Square. Union Square, yeah, yeah. and it's gone. Like, that building in New York is gone, so I don't know if it's still something that's, like, up and going, but I'm one of their alumni. <laughs> <laughs> but at that time, I was still trying to figure out I mean, it's like everybody, right? The last semester of college, everybody's looking at you like, what do you want to do with like I was the commencement speaker in my graduating class, and there was a line I had in my speech that I gave at Madison Square Garden. And I was just like, you know, it's interesting how everybody comes up to you now asking you what you want to do in the real world as if your life thus far has been fake. And like all the students were like, yes, all the parents were like, Mer. like, you know what I'm saying? Like, because it was them. It's like, leave us alone. Like, we yeah. don't know. We're, we're figuring it out. So, um, but that's the space that you're in, you know, this mix of like senioritis and wait, like it's going too fast because I don't know exactly what I'm going to do. So I was toying around with the idea of doing a workshop, a filmmaking workshop with the New York Film Academy, but doing it in Paris. I knew I did not want to do it in New York. And I had a best friend, my best friend from high school at that time, um, Brittany. She was finishing a study and work abroad program through her university in Paris. So she was like, look, come down to my flat for a couple of days. We're literally going to be sharing everything, like a bed. These are tiny apartments. This is not New York, like, you know, whole different type of living. Our refrigerator is half the size of what you're probably used to. But you're willing to stay here like I you can come for free and just like test it out. So I found a cheap flight for like four days and skipped two days of class my last semester and went out to Paris just to test it out. And I just like, I was like, okay, the world is completely different outside of the US. And that was when I decided that I was gonna apply for the program. And a couple months later, I was, uh, I was living in Paris for like a good portion, almost half of that summer doing the digital filmmaking workshop. And that changed everything. Paris changed everything. Did you have the opportunity to explore a lot of Europe when you were in Paris? Did you use it as a base? Uh, um, no, I was broke. Uh, comma. <laughs> <laughs> Classic <laughs> story. Um, but like, shouts out to Europe having, you know, you considered 
legally as a youth until the age of 26. Oh my God, it's the best. It's, it's, it's so great. Like the US is so ass backwards and so much <laughs> stuff. Like it's the more you travel, the more frustrated I get like coming home. And so I remember that being my first experience, like, wait a second. So I qualified for the youth cost of the URL pass to just get a train ticket and go around, you know, for a certain amount of time, you can go to as many countries as you want. So I did have enough money to get a URL pass. I didn't have a lot of time because I was in this like super intensive workshop, but I literally landed in Paris. And I think less than 24 hours later, I was on a train to Amsterdam and I wanted to go to Amsterdam by myself for the first time because I didn't know what I was going to do out there and I didn't want any stories following me home. <laughs> so, That's one reason to travel yeah, so it was, well. Right. It was it, it specifically Amsterdam. And, and the thing is, like, I was never, like, a smoker or anything like that, but I was like, yo, like, this place is known for X, Y, Z, and I am an adventurer and a voyeur and, like, all of these things and, like, I'm gone and, like, I'm free. I don't have to go to, like, wake up and go to class tomorrow at school. So I just, I, I didn't tell anybody, you know, and I told Brittany, I was like, look, I'm just going to leave. So I went out to Amsterdam for a weekend and, and like, I think I stopped in Brussels on like a layover just for like a couple hours to check it out. And then I came back, but yeah, I used it there, but I didn't have any money at that time to be able to really take advantage of it. And so you do these travels, you kind of get the taste for it. You see life outside of the U.S., what went from that experience to having the idea to start Nomadness? Right. And what did you experience that you thought something's missing and I'm going to create this thing? Right. What was missing for me were black people. <laughs> like I was like, I need like, I was like, I'm like, I know I'm not the only person doing this. I know that there are people in my demo that like, have travel as a priority in their life, like, where art thou, you know? And so that was part of it, was just, like, wanting to share these experiences. I didn't know I was going to become a business owner. I didn't know I was going to do trips. I didn't know I was going to curate this. I had no idea that Nomadness was going to be what it was. I didn't even go into it thinking I was creating a business model. I just needed a community. And so for me, it was it was really answering my own call. And I wanted to find more people that look like me. But it also didn't even start that way. Like Paris was um, nobody in their life should like ever have to transition from Paris to Poughkeepsie. <laughs> so like, <laughs> like nobody should have to go through that. And there's a lot of things that also happen in real life for people when they graduate college, right? Like one thing that nobody told me about, and if you're graduating college and you're listening to this and you're a woman, like I really, really want you to hear me right now because nobody ever told me this. There's a dynamic that happens with particularly, I think, daughters and mothers. Something shifts because now for the last four or however many years, you've been on your own of your own accord. Like you've graduated, you've proven that you're responsible, you can, you've committed to this, you've done what you're supposed to do, your responsibilities are there. But then for four years, your parents, and in my case, my mother had a house back to herself. You know, my brother was there, but he left also when I was coming back. We're exactly four years apart. And so this whole, like, our house turns into my house. And, you know, your room may completely change during the time that you're gone and you come back, like, what the hell is this, you know? But there is just, there's this underlying, it's not even a heaviness. There's just like this, it goes from mother-daughter to there's two women in this house. And so the conversations and the energy completely shifts and literally nobody warned me about this transition. <laughs> and my mother is, we're both very strong-willed. You know, we're very vocal. I get a lot of my freedom and I get that from her. So I'm not trying to like attack her with it, you know, but there were some serious, it got to a point where we had to have some like, like real heart-to-heart -heart sit downs and be like, listen, I want to leave as much as you want me to leave. <laughs> and like, and I know that you love me and I love you too, but it's clear that this isn't working anymore. And so I'm trying to do the best that I can, but like, I need you to not ride me while I'm like trying to find a job and do all this stuff. Cause you're just like making it worse, you know? And that was kind of our thing. And I only lasted about three months in the house when I got back from Paris, I was like, I have to get out of here. And it wasn't that she wasn't supportive. She supported the hell out of me still to this day does, but it was just a major dynamic shift and I was just like no 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 like this 
is this is not how this is going to go down. So I forgot the question, but (laughs) (laughs) it's real. It's real. Well, and I think it's also it's like you've had four years of independence and like being your own person. And I think it's also you come back and you're like, well, no one can tell me what to do anymore. I am my own person. Right. I'll leave whatever mess behind me that I want. Yeah. Um, and then I think your parents struggle with having to accept that you were now an adult and also sort of want to micromanage every aspect of your right. life as they've always done yeah. and, and should right. have been doing before you t- reached right. adulthood. to their credit, you know, but, but it changes. And I just don't think that we talk openly enough about the fact that that is a real thing because it affects you, you know, emotionally, just like mentally, it really, really does affect people. And especially, you know, and our parents always go through this, like when I graduated, it's like, look, it was a completely different (laughs) dynamic. Like your student loans weren't plaguing you for the rest of your life. Like, you know, like it's a completely different generation and they've got to also acknowledge that too. But that led to me getting out and then eventually, um, freelancing in television. That's my background. And I was doing it for a bunch of networks here in New York. And um, and there was one fateful Friday afternoon where my boss and half of our graphics department got called down to HR. And I always tell people, like, if you work in freelance, you know that if anybody gets called down to HR, particularly on a Friday, like, it's a wrap. And so they fired my boss and my freelance hours had just gotten up. And he was trying to bring me on his staff and they froze all his decisions. So him getting fired got me fired. And so it was like, whoa, what's going on? You know, I thought I left like the corporate hierarchy bullshit, you know. But what I did is I ran into a friend that I graduated with and she had just gotten back from teaching English for a year in Japan. And she told me, she's like, look, you haven't been able to shut up about Paris since you came back. And it's been like years at this point apply to teach abroad. Like you need money, but like this is a way for you to get back on the road and also do it responsibly. And so she was the one that put the bug in my ear. And three months later, I got the okay that I had been hired to work and teach English at seven elementary schools in Niigata, Japan. I'd never been to Asia, never been to Japan, had no interest in the background or the culture, didn't know any Japanese. And I ended up moving out there like eight weeks after I got the notice. So it moved really, really, really fast. And I was an English teacher in elementary school and a bartender on the weekends. And um, and I lived in Niigata for a year. And Niigata, my tiny apartment that I just did a 10-year reunion, my birthday, my 35th birthday was a couple weeks ago. And I went back to Niigata for the first time in 10 years and found my apartment from sight. And like I no madness was born in that apartment. This apartment was like 300 square feet. <laughs> like, he's one of those little signs outside. Yeah, yeah it's like, like so plaque. and so lived here. Right, right, right. <laughs> and it's like, but it's crazy. Like I remember the first, like with shoddy audio and like disrespectful video, but it was just like pirated Final Cut Pro that I had like stole from college before I left. Like, but I would edit these videos together of just what it was like to be like a black 24 year old at that time living in Japan and like trying to backpack where I could. And I traveled to India while I was out there during one of my breaks and, you know, just trying to see the world. But it was, it was Niigata. It was, and I didn't get this perspective until I went back a couple weeks ago. I was in extreme isolation out there because you have literally the geographic location of Japan, which is just out there, right? And there's isolation. It's very egalitarian, right? So, you know, Japan is very comfortable for the Japanese, you know, not for necessarily like a black girl from New York. But going through those levels of isolation, not knowing the language and living in the suburbs, not even in the nearest major city, so nobody around me spoke English, you know? It was isolation on top of isolation on top of isolation, which you, it makes sense, would then breed this like really incessant and deep rooted need for community. And I think that's why I created No Madness, because I was in Niigata like bugging the fuck out. <laughs> like, we're like, what is happening? Like, like, I need people. Yeah, right. And, and it started in, um, I started in Niigata and then, you know, ended up going through me living in Chiang Mai, Thailand, not that long after, like the same year that I finished in Japan, I'd ended up moving to Chiang Mai later that year. And so were you doing a lot of solo travel when you could during that period of time? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm still to this day, like the first group trip I ever went on was 
the first nomadness group trip. Like I had never been on one. I was like, I don't even know if I like you people. Like, I don't know what this is. I, I literally, we showed up in Bocas del Toro, Panama in January of 2012. And I said, you know, well, <laughs> we're here. Either this is going to be amazing or this is going to go horribly wrong. And I'm just going to have to like commit to whatever happens over the next like six days right now and just take responsibility for it. And there was no itinerary. There was no blueprint. Like we just showed up and I was like, OK, like Nomadness was like two months old. I didn't know what the hell it was. I didn't know these people. And it ended up being this like self-curated amazing experience with these people. And a couple months after that, that same trip, you know, thanks to Tamika Anderson, an amazing writer, it ended up being in Ebony Magazine. And like once it was in Ebony Magazine and the other bloggers who are also now Nomadness members started to, it was like the word of mouth. I tell people all the time, I said, from the New York Times down, now with Nomadness approaching eight years old, I've never once paid for PR. I've never had a PR agent. I've never paid a publicist for anything that we've done. And so this has been really homegrown and organic and the people and the brand loyalty, like it comes from me showing up as a leader um, when it's pretty and when it's shitty, because I've gone through some major life transitions with these people in this community, but also from having so much talent in-house, like anything that anybody needs, like somebody in Nomadness does it, you know? I'm curious what space, I mean, obviously, like, you had a space that you needed Nomadness to fill, but do you feel like the community as it stands now with more than 20,000 members is filling that same exact space for all of its, all of those people? Yeah, it's fascinating because, I mean, so my, like, Bible for creating Nomadness, running into another friend, shout out to Amber, was the book Tribes by Seth Godin, right? She recommended this. I had pitched her like as a friend over tea, right? And I was like, I have this idea. Like I'm thinking about building this community, this and the other. And I'm talking in real time, flushing it out. And she's like, you know what? She was just like, you need to read Seth Godin's book, Tribes. And I was like, all right, cool. And we were, we were literally at Argo Tea having this conversation right by 14th Street, Union Square. And I left her and went straight to Barnes & Noble. I'm a bibliophile. So you give me a book and I'm like, oh, I'll have it either, either between Amazon Prime or, <laughs> or Barnes & Noble. I'll have it within like 48 hours. And so um, I remember picking it up and reading it almost back to back like three times in a row and being like, and it's really a call for leaders to step up, you know? And I still to this day have this just like thumbnailed everything in this book. And I was like, all right, I'm going to start it with like 100 people, you know. And one of the things that he had in the book that is so true is that it's not about being a top down community. That's not a community. That's like a hierarchy, you know. Um, when you as the leader can get out of the way and the conversation's still going, and the relationships are linear, you know, they're not vertical, they're horizontal, right? They don't need you to happen. That's when you're really building a tribe and a community. And that was like the biggest takeaway from the book that I had. And that's what started to show me with Nomadness. Like, I can say, all ego aside, there are tens of thousands of people on this earth that would not have known each other if I did not take the jump and start Nomadness with 100 people like started with a hundred people. And so I see them travel together all the time. We have tribe babies. People Aww. have met in no madness and gotten pregnant. Mm -hmm. I'm like this like default, like fairy auntie <laughs> <laughs> to like m multiple kids around the world. We have tribe members who have gotten married and who are engaged people that have started their own businesses. That's the other thing. Nomadness is kind of like this in-house incubator. So, you know, I think about like Libria Jones, who has um, a wanderous life and wandering moms, which was really a stem off of like all the conversations that were popping up in Nomadness with like single mothers, you know, and parents who are like, I want to travel with my kids and maybe even move remotely. She created kind of this subset group that's now is its own entity. Um, uh, Sanjia Lioness, she's big. She's like the super adventurer in Tribe. She created her spinoff group, which was like Bucket List Beasts. There's like all of these, like Nomadis has been this umbrella and this catalyst to so much, specifically black female entrepreneurship in the travel space. And with them starting in Nomadis, it's cool to be able to see how much it grew because it, it 
legitimizes everything that we've been telling the industry, you know, that we're not going anywhere, that it's bigger than just us. I think Nomadness was ahead of its time when it comes to certain things like, you know, sponsorships and partnerships with brands. I think only within the last like two years are brands really starting to wake up to the fact that we're not going anywhere and that our buying power, you know, going from like 50 to 63 billion dollars in the course of like a year and a half in the travel market, like... This is, you know, I'm glad that they weren't on it because then I was, you know, I was able to come in and fulfill this niche and create this space and become an entrepreneur. But, you know, at the same time, it's very it's still interesting to watch the industry deal with us. Well, then it's it's nice if you're the first person to kind of pursue something like that, because you can also be authentic because you haven't got anyone. Yeah, it's nice, but it's also a pain in the ass. (laughs) And, And it is. And and it took maturity. I didn't know what I was doing when I created this at all, you know, but I'm a risk taker and I have that like flightiness of like an artist, but like that focus of, you know, a laser. And so when I need to jump, I'll jump and then figure it out along the way. But the reason why I say it's a pain in the ass is because during the climb and figuring out exactly what nomadness was and exactly who I am, like I started at 27 years old, you know, you know, you find people copying you, you know, or pulling things from your process or learning from your mistakes that like hurt you along the way, you know, or scarred you. And that was very difficult as an Aries New Yorker and myself to deal with at times, you know, my ego wasn't as evolved as it is today when I first started and it became painful, you know, and, and infuriating, you know. And so, When you're the first, I tell people all the time, when you're the first, nobody else is ever going to know what it's like to be the first. Even if you're the second, you don't know what it's like to be the first. You're the first one going into the jungle with the machete and cutting down. You're the first one, like everybody is following your path. And it wasn't until probably, I don't know, maybe like four or five years into building No Madness, I watched Dave Chappelle's Inside the Actor Studio. And I was lucky enough to meet him a couple years ago and actually tell him this story. But... It was the first time that somebody had said a quote that really sat with me and put my ego in check and gave me perspective. And he was talking about Richard Pryor in this episode. And the quote that he used was, the mark of genius is when everything before you is eradicated and everything after you bears your mark. And when I heard that, I was like, whoa, okay. This is why this is happening like this. And it made me put my ego to the side and really just like, I mean, I never stopped and was always focused, but that quote, hands down, that quote changed my life. It absolutely changed my life. In business, it completely changed my life and my perspective. And I became a lot calmer and confident in my positionality because I knew nobody could fuck with it. I'm Chris Murphy. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Hilary Busis. We are from Vanity Fair's Still Watching Podcast. Next up, we're watching the new HBO show, The Regime. Madam Chancellor, let's keep the gloves on. This is not a confrontation. We're just saying what's true. Academy Award winner Kate Winslet is our chancellor as she leads a faux European autocracy in turmoil. We'll be watching week by week as the regime unravels. And we'll be talking to the stars along the way. New episodes of Still Watching will drop every Sunday after the regime airs. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to level up? For me, it's my hiking boots, which have gotten me over some pretty tough terrain. And I'm not talking about my morning commute on the New York City subway. They've pushed me to go to far-off places like trekking in the remote mountains in Patagonia, wildlife spotting amid the thick rainforest of the Amazon, and climbing through canyons in the Utah desert. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. There's an available panorama glass roof, 33-inch all-terrain tires, and multi-terrain select driving modes. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior means that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. 
She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. And so now when you see your ideas trickling down into other people's ventures or Mm. people overcoming problems that you had to basically come up with the solutions to. How do you feel about that now? I feel proud, actually. And I never thought I would ever get to a point to say that. To literally see an idea that you built out into fruition, a risk that you took, alter an entire, just like a whole region of an industry... Like average people aren't able to say that, you know, and so I'm humbled by that. It's actually terrifying. I don't think about it often (laughs) because it's scary. Like, I don't think about the magnitude of no madness often. I'm like, just focus on like, what do we need to do today? Right. (laughs) You know, because it's terrifying. But but that terror is like what humbles you, you know, and keeps you centered and honest with yourself. And I always know that it's like way bigger than me. You know, like I walk into these meetings and all this stuff like the confidence comes from experience and knocking my head up against the wall a couple of times. But it also comes from knowing that I have a community that holds me up and that I represent them when I walk into a room. It's not about me. I'm this vessel, but it's it's so much bigger than me, you know, and, and I was apparently built for this, you know, all of it. So, you know, you just you answer the call and kickbox. <laughs> like to not, yeah. Well, I'm curious to not because it. just in following you on Instagram, your community is so supportive of you specifically, but of everyone else in the community. Yes. I see so many yes. people shouting each other out. And I think that's like such an important thing for everyone to do, but especially for women to do, to yeah, just be like, absolutely. this is such an amazing thing. What does it feel like to see all of that, not just towards you, but towards the other women in your group who have created companies? And it's amazing. Brands? And like a bunch of us have become friends. Really, that was the catalyst behind like Audacity Fest, right? One thing, I wanted to create the antithesis to the New York Times travel show. And I don't know if that's a bad thing to say <laughs> at Condé Nast. It's it probably not. is. But I wanted to create the antithesis. But let me be more specific because people can take that and like run with it, right? First off, when I walk into it, I like I have a panic attack. <laughs> like it's just it's it's oversaturated. And I don't know if that's how it started. It's been around for a long time, and I respect that. People work their ass off on that event. But it's oversaturated, but it's still very whitewashed. And I was just like, this for all these people to be in here, like the fact that this isn't more diverse is kind of like alarming to me, you know? And so being the uh, entrepreneur that I am, when I see something that isn't created, I'm like, ooh, like, so what would it look like if I kind of like dabbled in this arena? And so we did a conference in New York for three years um, called NMDN Alternative Travel Conference, and that was the genesis. But I wanted to do something that was more creative. I wanted to do something that could scale a little bit easier. And I wanted to get away from the word conference. Like even our conference was in like an event space that we completely turned over into something else. It was never at like a hotel ballroom. I was like, no, like this has got to be like, it's got to be immersive and it's going to be fun and like quirky. You come in at nine o'clock in the morning and there's like hip hop music blasting and they're just like, yo, this is the coolest shit I've ever like walked. Like I'm awake. I'm awake now. Um, That's the vibe that we were going for. And so turning it into essentially Audacity Fest was also the fact that we would go to a lot of these travel conferences and functions and you would see maybe like two or three of us. And if you saw four of us, it was like, yo, whoever created this like was on it. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and and I was like, we just need a place where we are, like the majority, right? And we represent not just like black travelers, but like when we did Audacity Fest, like shouts out to Kifa Shaw and uh, Dr. Maitha Alassin. Like we had Syrian Americans, Muslim Americans like in there, you know, our keynote panel was traveling under Trump 2.0 and they killed it, you know? having LGBTQ travel conversations, having the hard conversations that you would never get greenlit at like a New York Times travel show. (laughs) They'd be like, what? Half of their sponsors would run away, you know? We're like, "Mm mm-mm, like let's have these conversations in a safe space. Let's bring the influencers and the micro-influencers who I also believe don't get enough credit for building out this, um, this movement. Let's bring them all together and have this conversation and it'd be like, you know, for us, by us. And, um, and so that's really 
where that came from because we've all become friends and we look out for one another. I've put people on and shouted people on to like business contracts. Um, Another one that I keep close is Kelly Edwards. I love Kelly Edwards. In 30 years of programming, I'm going to shout another one out. 30 years of programming, Travel Channel just got their first black female host, Kelly Edwards. And she is a deep sea diving mountaineer pilot who flies the plane to the island on her show, Mysterious Islands, with her crew in the back. And you know there was some producer in the room that was like, I I don't know if she's qualified enough. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Meanwhile, everybody else on your shows is eaten. (laughs) You know? It's like, we have to be, like, superhuman. You know what I'm saying? To, like, get in the room. And it's just like, this is bullshit. You know, and so I, I am fond on creating our rooms and Audacity Fest was another room, you know. And so we launched it last year, September 6th in Oakland, California. Shout out to Visit Oakland. Um, and it's coming back this year, uh, September 27th to the 29th. And we're doing it in Memphis, Tennessee, down at Beale Street Landing. So I'm super excited for that. But I mean, and it was all of us. I was like everybody in. It's like I opened up the floodgates. I got Jabril from Passport Heavy in there. I got Gloria Tomo from Glow Graphics. And she's like one of the faces of GoPro. She's on billboards. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, yo, we got like the whole crew. Bring the whole crew <laughs> because we're going to do this really good once because we need to make sure that this knocks, you know? Um, and so that's that's where I come from. But we are super, super, super supportive. And, and you know, just me being me, like, I don't forget the people. If you do Tiffany, shout out to Tiffany Budget Nisa. She has this quote that I love. If you do good by me, I do great by you. And that's how I feel about the travel community. And then there's those who rub me the wrong way in the first couple years and they're not at Audacity Fest, you know? <laughs> and it's no shade. It's just like, yo, you grow apart. And you've de- and they've developed amazing brands on their own. And I give them credit for that. But that doesn't necessarily, I don't, I'm not, f- I don't have to work with you, you know? So you pick and choose. But I support heavily those I support. I'm curious when you're talking about representation, clearly being such a problem within the travel industry, is there, are there any other main problem areas, main problem areas, because I'm sure there are a ton that you feel like the industry is failing people of color. Yeah, I mean, marketing, it's really funny when I do keynotes. So I get booked to do a lot of keynotes for boards of tourism. And it's funny to be up on stage and see who's with you and who you're making like ridiculously uncomfortable. (laughs) And I think you can tell from my, I'm me all the time, you know, and there's a little bit of, you know, funny in it because it helps digest bites because I do think that there is, there is something to delivery and how you are offering information over to somebody where it can be received more open than not. I do believe in that. I don't dumb down the issue or the facts associated with it. But my delivery may be something that they like don't kind of, you know, you put the the medicine in the candy. And so that's interesting to see. But the marketing, there's actually one slide that I have in my uh, keynote presentation where I have asked the tribe, what are your three biggest issues with how you're marketed to as a person of color? And I black out their faces and names so that they remain anonymous. But I literally copied and pasted their responses, like unedited curses and everything in there. And I literally prepped the room before I bring this slide up. <laughs> I'm like, I come with love. <laughs> Everybody ready? You know, but I read off some of these things verbatim. And it's everything from like, you know, you know, lack of diversity and inclusion in the hiring and who's sitting at the table to make certain marketing decisions. Like you need to get people not recruiting from HBCUs. And I say now after Beyonce's homecoming on Netflix, like everybody should know what the hell an HBCU historically black college and university is at this point. But not having people in the E and C suites of these companies to make sure that the, they, they're also hiring people in at the lower levels to make sure that you're more diverse and inclusive with your hiring practices. And that will immediately and directly affect your marketing efforts, right? Some of the things that came up is like, why is everything marketed to me like a white party, an all white party? Like, I want culture too, you know, showing us doing the same things as everybody else. I've taken three groups of black people to go run with the bulls in Pamplona, Spain. We go to, I've taken seven groups to India for Holy Festival of Colors. We are doing the same things that everybody else is doing, but you do not see it in the industry marketing nor on mainstream media, you know, which is why I call out a lot of the TV networks. And so, 
there's still so much room for our representation and also understanding that we're not monolithic. All of us aren't Kelly. You know, all of them aren't me. We have kind of played chess, I feel like, the last eight years with the industry. And it's like, all right, Kelly got them on this, like, TV adventure. Jabril's hitting them with, like, the passport-heavy videos with the Board of Tourism. Like, we got Glow and some other people that are working on the branding. I got it on the festival community front. Like, literally, it's like, all right, what, like, everybody's playing their part because we've got to, like, we have to make sure that we're represented and that this doesn't slip past us. And so... That's kind of how we've approached it, I feel. Whether it was conscious or not, that's what we've done, you know? And so I think the industry is just starting to, like, wake up and put actual dollars towards it. And I think also the industry needs to not make the mistake of feeling like it is their audacity and their responsibility to tell our stories for us. Like, let us tell our stories. Be our amplifier, you know, and and that's a big issue, too. Don't like hear that you need diversity and then think that you can create a campaign from scratch. You don't even know where to start, because if you did, you would have been doing this already. You need to like come to the trusted brands, the trusted influencers like myself and a number of people that I mentioned, you know, the Onika Raymonds, like let us do the talking, become our amplifier and our partner in that way, because that's the other thing, too, with black people in general, particularly black women, which is 78% of my demographic, if they don't trust you, like, they're not going to mess with you at all, you know? And so they need faces and names that they trust. And and that's why it's got to come from the the originators and the people that they know, you know, and not necessarily from the corporations and the businesses. It's also just insane to think that ignoring this vast mass of travelers can then just be sort of changed overnight. Yeah. So you just have to kind of like do a couple of campaigns and you're done. Yeah. And I think between like my presentation and even like my TED talk, I feel like touches on this a little bit. Like I tell people too, I'm like, look, you can walk and chew gum at the same time, you know, like appealing and having a subset of your marketing campaign that deals with diversity and inclusivity is not going to all of a sudden magically alienate everybody else that you've been reaching your whole business life cycle. You know what I'm saying? It's not. (laughs) And I think that there's this weird fear that it will, that it has the ability to, that it's not worth it to do it. I don't know what it is, but it's whatever it is, it's prevalent. And it's like, it's in the DNA. Um, So you've done all these trips. What have been some of the most memorable ones? The Mm. ones that you hold close even now? Um, Samoa. Samoa was interesting, and you can actually see this. You mentioned the um, the Nomadness Project, the two seasons that we did on Issa's YouTube channel. The first two episodes are wrapped around our trip to Samoa. And um, we stayed on a beach fallet that was hit by the 2009 tsunami. And the stories of resilience in the wake of, like, horrific loss. Um, and it was interesting when we got there... They bury their, like, it's not like a cemetery. Like, they bury people on their property. So you would see all these, like, tombstones and stuff, like, on people's properties, which was, like, really freaky at first. But then what was crazy was you would see the dates, and it was, like, a bunch of people that died on the same day. And it was when the tsunami hit and, like, families that were wiped out. And our driver, Lenny, who was so gracious enough to tell his story on camera and let us document it, Um, He lost two of his children in the tsunami. And there was just a power and a resilience to the Samoan people that was like unlike anything I had ever seen. Um, So Samoa just definitely, and it was a great group of people that were on that trip. It was our off the beaten path trip. Like it was like all we had was like our hut, our light, our mosquito net, (laughs) you know, our mattress and our blanket. And it was one of the most amazing trips South Africa the first time, our first trip on the continent, and the relationship that I now have with, you know, Johannesburg. Like, I go back every year. I'm talking about getting property there, and tribe members want to get property there every time we go. Like, the relation, you know, getting off the plane and being in a place where being black is revered and not something that you have to, like, work around, you know, really, really powerful. I would also say India, We've done India so many times. I have a personal motto that I try to take a trip that makes me uncomfortable at least once every two years. 
it's my own reality check and, you know, my own dose of humility to make sure that I'm focused on the right things every couple of years. And so going to India, being in Jaipur, the level of poverty that you see, but to also go during Holy Festival of Colors, which we do with a local family, like in their neighborhood, in the streets, and to see the utter joy. Like, it's the first festival I ever went to where I was so happy that all I could do was cry. Like, it was so weird. <laughs> I was like, all I can do is cry. It was just, it's overwhelming, but it's beautiful. And then it's that dose of perspective. Like, a lot of these people don't have anything, nothing. But they are out here, happy holding it up, looking a mess with our colors all over our face. and. People are smiling and the sun is shining and the community is out and it's a day of like forgiveness and letting go of the past. And it was just unlike anything I had ever seen. Some of the festivals really mean a lot to me. We've done um, in Thailand, we did Loi Krathong, the Lantern Festival, one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen in my life. To just see thousands of lanterns go up around you at the same time. Oh my gosh, it's unbelievable. And our last trip to Chiang Mai, we did Songkrong, the water gun festival, which a lot of people don't know about. Songkrong is the dopest shit out. I have a friend who just went and it was like the craziest thing I've ever seen. (laughs) Meredith is just like nodding like a Amazing. (laughs) Yeah. It is the most amazing festival, dude. Like I'm telling you. It's a three-day water gun fight. And I mean, everybody catches it. The kids, the grandparents, everybody catches it. Like, I was like, if the whole world could get all their angst out on, the, on like, in the course of a weekend with water gun fights, like, the entire world would be a better place. God, there's so many people I want to throw water balloons yeah. at. Just super soakers. <laughs> I mean, all day. they were coming out, like, we didn't know this because all of a sudden we'd be walking down the street and all of a sudden either, like, a bucket would get thrown on us or it would be like somebody so aggressively like doing the water and the water would be freezing compared to all the other water. Do you know that they take, they put water in um, garbage disposals, like garbage containers, and they freeze it. And then they let it melt over the course of the three days. It's like a shock to your system, okay? Like, it's just, it's pure battle. And again, what I loved about it was the same feeling that I got from Holy. It was just like pure fun like pure bliss and we do not especially as americans it's like we don't have opportunities to just let loose on a countrywide level and the whole country is wet for three days if you go to thailand during songkrong i don't want to hear this my hair nothing (laughs) you have no business in thailand the entire country of thailand during songkrong if you do not plan to get wet your clothes everything and nobody's apologizing for it and you deserve what you get well it's like what you were saying earlier about how sort of the sign of a successful community Mm -hmm. is when that sense of hierarchy is stripped away. And it sounds like that is a perfect example of it. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing. I mean, it's everybody's out there. And it's, I literally, I cannot wait to have kids to be able to like eventually take them to Songkrong. Like holy Songkrong, they're going to be like, this is insane. And I already know they're going to want to go to Songkrong or they're going to want to do it like at home like every week. They're going to be like, you pissed me off. And then, like, come in the room with a water. (laughs) They'll be like, but it was fine in Thailand. (laughs) Right, exactly. And then I'm going to be like, damn it. (laughs) Creating monsters. Um, Just to wrap this all up, I'm curious. You know, we've talked about a lot about where you've come from this Mm -hmm. whole journey. What do you see as being next? Right. Um, It's funny because I just had a conversation about this question and how particularly like in America, everything is centered around what's next and not around like what's now. Like you're graduated before almost you graduate yourself. And so I answer purposefully and intentionally with really like what's next is what's now. And only having one year of audacity under our belt, like totally focusing on Memphis, um, making sure that we get that into a space that... um, is viable for like the growth that we want and it's going to be in a different place every time we have it. Uh, After this year, it's more than likely going to end up being a biannual thing. So it's not going to be yearly. It's going to be every two years because I want a life. I want to be like become a mom and things like that. And I think really taking stock in my life. um, I'm in a space right now of 
getting back to my creative roots and my storytelling roots and my TV roots. And so um, I am on the third or fourth iteration of a TV pilot that I wrote last year for my birthday. And I'm getting notes back from, you know, a lot of people that are in the industry, amazing people that are working as my mentor, my mentors and just like my cheerleaders to keep going with it. And um, and I am, you know, putting it together and it's based around my life. And it's the travel stories that nobody knows about because they were before No Madness. So it's kind of like Avita's life story leading up to creating this this movement. And and I want to tell my story. I want to tell my story. That's where I am right now. So we'll get to see you in that tiny apartment in Japan. Yeah, right? Either me or somebody playing me. I was like, I'm definitely going in as writer-producer. I was like, I'm going to have to audition to play myself. And people hear that, it's like, it's so it's crazy, it's you. I was like, yeah, I know how to be me, but like, I don't know if I know how to act like, like me. me being me. I don't think I may me, suck. Me as 23 years old. Right, right. That's another thing, you know what I'm saying? And kind of like going back, and there were a lot of things that happened during that time, and it's been, like, I've had breakdowns writing. I really have, because the character development and obviously it's based on my life but it's not all you know verbatim but getting into like some of the characters that are actually mapped out of my friend out of my friends and you know I had an ex that you know and a, my he was my best friend in college and an ex that passed unexpectedly in a motorcycle accident and that comes up in the pilot episode and so it's like yo like I've had to dig deep and go into some rabbit holes that were covered like a decade ago, you know, and really look at it from all from all angles. And so that's really that's what I'm trying to do. I want to tell my stories. I want to get my show picked up. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. It's been fun. Um, You'll be able to find tickets for Audacity Fest in the show notes. So definitely check that out. You can find all of the information about Women Who Travel at womenwhotravel.com. And you can find me at Mare. And me, at Lale Hanna. And how can people find Nomadness Tribe? Yeah, um, at Nomadness Tribe on all social media. And our website is nomadnesstv.com. And people can follow you yeah, at? Yeah, at Evie Ravi. Um, that's my personal. And it's like linked to everything. And then evitarobinson.com. Amazing. We'll talk to you next week. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, host of Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. This week, with the help of Dan Adler and Olivia Nuzzi, we're going inside the media circus swirling around Donald Trump's criminal trial. People want coverage of Donald Trump. There are sort of shades of 2015, 2016. I found it to be a a total break from the reaction to a lot of Trump coverage in the last two years. Join me, Brian Stelter, on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Listen wherever you get podcasts. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth.